So good morning. Uh, as, as Aaron had said, I'm, I'm A.J. Stedford, one of the, the lay elders here. Uh, it's a, an honor and, and privilege to, to be with you to, to bring God's Word. Uh, we're halfway through the, the book of Esther, so chapter 5, I mean, really the, the halfway point. So with this, uh, we, we'll see two, two distinct paragraphs. So one following Esther's story, and we get to see a little bit of a, a turning point, which, uh, you know, kind of in the middle of the chapter, a little bit of a turning point. Uh, towards the, the favor of, of the Jewish people and saving them. And then there's a second paragraph that deals with the, this antagonist, the, the villain of the story, Haman, and could see how, how he's handling things and, and what's going on with him. Uh, so we'll read one half and then dissect. We'll read the other half and dissect a little bit as well. Uh, one other thing I was going to mention, I just thought of this this morning when, uh, when Aaron was introducing me. Uh, as he said, I, I teach uh, different sciences at, at Cedar Park Christian High School. And, and one of the things that, that I thought of uh, that I think is a really good analogy for, for the book of Esther, so as we, we title it The, the Hidden King, uh, the fact that God's not mentioned, we don't like, specifically see his name in the book, but we know he's there. And, and it reminds me, and this, you know, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully there's enough nerds out there that appreciate this as much as I do, uh, but part of the atom, the electron, so it's something that, that everyone acknowledges exists. It's something that exists, it's real, nobody disputes it. But no one has actually ever seen it before. So no one's seen it, so how do we know it's real? Why is it such a, a common thing? Well, you know, there's a lot of depth to the answer, but the simple is really we see its effects. We see what it does, and we can observe what it does, and there's really no other explanation as to what causes these effects. And, and that just reminds me of what we see in this book of, yeah, God's specifically not named in it, but man, he is everywhere. And we know he's everywhere because we see his effects, we see his workings, and there really is no other explanation. So it's one of the reasons I, I really love this book. Um, so we'll, we'll go through, as I said, I'll start with the, the first paragraph of it, which is five, one through eight. So I'll read that and then we'll... Uh, explain a little bit and dissect some of it. So 5, starting with verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So where we had left last week uh, at the end of chapter 4 was there was this, this decree that had gone out that Haman had, in a sense, tricked 
uh, King Ahasuerus to put out this decree to kill all the Jewish people. And really, uh, and, and Pastor Nate broke it down really well, kind of the, the background of that. But basically, all the Jews, which includes Esther and her cousin Mordecai, who we see in this, in this book, includes them. Uh, and so Mordecai's writing to Esther and telling her and, and urging her, you need to do something. Like, you need to go to the king on behalf of your people. And, and hopefully, you know, you could be the, mean that God, the means that God uses to save us. And Esther says, you know, if I perish, I perish. I'm, I'm going to do it. And so that's where we're left with. So now we walked into, okay, well, what's going to happen? So that's where we, we were at the beginning where it says he holds out his golden scepter. So he holds it out. So we see right away in this chapter that her life is spared. So right away we're seeing this turn towards the favor of Esther and really towards God's people. She was finding favor in the king's sight. Even still, though, when I, when I read this, I'm I'm looking at it, and I'm, I'm trying to, and I remember that the first time reading it, I was like figuring out, what is Esther's plan here? Like, I mean, well, we're going to get a lot more of it. We're going to get the resolution in chapters to follow. I don't get to preach that one. But we know that it's coming. But at this point, I'm like, why not just give him the request? Like, he, he has said, I will give you up to half my kingdom, which really is it's an expression. He's not literally going to do that. Kings don't just give away half their kingdom. But it's an expression that just means I'm going to be generous with you. I'm going to fulfill your request, and I'm going to be generous. And so it seems like she's where she needs to be, yet what does she do? She's like, well, I prepared a banquet. And then they have a big feast together. And he's like, so it says he has wines, he's feeling good. And, and he's like, what's your request? Tell me. I am going to give it to you. And, and she's like, well, if it pleases you. And I'm like, I'm sitting there waiting for it. I'm like, all right, here it comes. And then she's like, I'm going to prepare another feast tomorrow. I'm like, why? What, what is happening? Uh, and so, I mean, that's my initial thought. Uh, I mean, reading through, especially reading through some of the commentaries, uh, it just brings to light some things that, that we want to consider in terms of Esther's position and, and where she is here. So, first thing, remember the king that she's dealing with. Like, the, the previous queen was ousted because he had asked her to come and she said no. And so that, and that just blew things up in his palace and the whole kingdom. And so we can see he's pretty fickle, and it did not go well. Like when, when the previous queen did something he didn't like, it did not go well for her. And so she had seen that previous example. That's the only reason that she is queen now. So king, fickle, he has a really large ego, which he had, has shown in, the, in those previous chapters, so very prideful. Uh, and then there's a lot of other like, little nuances and other, other things that are going on. I mean, Esther is trying to save not only herself, but all of the Jews. Uh, she also needs to try to get Haman out of the picture in the sense that as long as he's around and if he is second in power, which is where he is right now, as long as he's there, he, he can find ways to manipulate the king again. It seems, like, it seems like anybody can do that. And so he can find ways to do it and might just end up in the same situation. So she's got to try to get him out of power in, in some way. Plus, other things, the, the law that was put into place, so the king had already decreed it, signed his name on it in the sense, his, his signet ring, and so he had put out this law, and the laws are supposed to be irreversible. So she's going to ask him to reverse an irreversible law, which also is going to cost him a lot of money. I don't understand the whole process of what the money's being used for, but in some of the things that I read, it was saying it could cost up to half a year's tax return that he was taking from the people. So it's going to be a lot of money to help repair the damages and, and redo everything that, that he was doing. 
Also, he's going to be losing face, and we know that he's prideful because he just sent out this big decree of something he's going to do, and now he's immediately, she's going to say, and now I want you to take it back, which just makes him look kind of foolish. And she's got to reveal her identity as a Jew, which she had not told him, and, and he didn't know. So she's got all these different things that she's working with, and you can imagine, like, I started thinking about that, and I'm like, oh, that makes me anxious. And so she's got a lot of things she's dealing with, and she needs to be very careful and very calculated with how she maneuvers, which is largely, uh, we, we assume, what she's doing here. So it's not just stalling, it's not just she was nervous, but likely, likely, she's just trying to be very calculated with her steps to make sure that she saves all the Jewish people and that she does so for, for good, getting Haman out of the picture. Um, a couple other things that I, that I wanted to highlight here, because that's, that's really the, the main, like, kind of the nuts and bolts of what we see going on. Um, I want to take a little more time to, to look at uh, just what Esther was, was doing, in a sense of kind of what's happening inside of her, in her, in her heart. Because uh, as we learned in previous chapters, uh, as it seemed like she wasn't really living out her faith in a sense. I know uh, Pastor Mike broke it down really well back in, uh, in chapter 2, and this idea that, that Esther, you know, she wasn't really, like, you know, she wasn't even straightforward with her own faith as she stepped into being the queen. And it just seemed like a lot of what she did was more cultural and more just not exposing her faith, not talking about God, and, and focus a lot more on just, well, what was happening. Um, so there wasn't this strong push. And so it was a really good sermon. If you didn't hear that one, I, I encourage you to go online and, and listen to some of those. It uh, helps to, to build this up well. But, but what changed in Esther, where she had been going through the motions, had she been a part of the culture, didn't seem too bothered by it, what changes here where all of a sudden now she's going to take a step out in faith? And, and in the end, really what we see is it's, it's the dire situation. It's the difficulty of the time where... Things probably had been comfortable and, and somewhat convenient for her. I mean, she was the, the queen at that point. And now, all of a sudden, well, things have changed. The situation has changed. It is a lot more difficult of a time where her life and the lives of her family and her people are on the line, which drastic situations, difficult situations, have a way of, of really waking us up. They have a way of, of turning our hearts back to God. Uh, and that's why really, like what, what C.S. Lewis called a, a severe mercy, this idea that there are some mercies that are just severe, like he talked about, like, severe as death itself, but it's those severe mercies, and they are a mercy because God will use these really difficult situations, these really tough times to help point us back to him, help to remind us that, that he's in control, help to remind us of how much we need him. I, I, th I think of a, a good example, and I could name tons of them in my life, of like all the, there's all these different hard times I've been through, and the way that God has grown me, and, and I encourage you guys actually to do that as well. Think of difficult times you've been through, and, and think of the ways that God has, has worked in you, or worked through you in those difficult times, because it helps you to be more, more thankful for what, you know, for what God brings your way. Um, one, one story in particular was actually my dad's story. I, I, I share this one because it, it fits really well with the story where he hadn't been a Christian. Uh, he became a Christian through cancer when he was 55. But I remember him sharing some of his story with me and sharing the story of how he actually had a, a miraculous vision when he was 18 because he had knew some stuff about God and, and Jesus. 
Uh, and so there was something in his head and something at work in his heart. And he said he, he prayed. It was when he had gone off to college and he prayed. And he just, God, if you're real, give me a sign. And he said that he lost vision. Like legitimately, like things just went black. And then he saw a light that got bigger and bigger. And then he saw Jesus on the cross and he was at the foot of it. And then his vision came back. I'm listening to the story. So this is, he was telling me this when he's 55. Like, I've never heard of that. And my mom was like, I never heard that either. And it was just something he held on to. And what he told me was that he never, he only shared it with one other person, and, but he never, he never acted on it. And he said he, he said he was afraid. He said legitimately he was just afraid to take the step forward because, well, he enjoyed his life. He enjoyed what he had. And he was a, he was a good guy in terms of you know, moral standards. And, and so he just said that he didn't want to do it. So given who his friends were, given he was going into the military, all these different things. He's like, it was going to shake my life up, and I just was afraid to take that step. And it took something drastic for him to take that step forward. And so in the end, like he said he regretted a lot of the missed opportunities, but was extremely thankful. He said the cancer, he said, the cancer has been a blessing to me. It's killing my body, but it saved my soul. And so there's blessing. There's blessing in and even the difficult. And for him, that's what, that was the thing that he needed to push him forward, even after the miraculous. So that's what we, we see, I, I think, with Esther here, is this idea of where she had been going a lot with the culture and doing her own thing, but now something drastic has pushed her forward. So she doesn't seem worried about being queen at all. She said, if I perish, I perish. And she's going to go beforehand, doesn't know how it's going to be. She could be killed. She could at least be ousted like the last queen. Who knows? But she's counting it as loss, and she's going forward for the sake of not only herself, but her people. So she's been humbled, and also with that going forward, one of the things I want to point out also is just kind of what, what she does and, and how, how she does it. Um, I'll hit that in a second, though, but the reminders of jumping up the previous got ahead of myself a little bit. Uh, the idea that with Esther and like even the, the story with my dad of it's not, it's not too late. Like, even if you have missed some opportunities, it's still not too late to take steps forward in faith. Like with Esther, I don't know what her life had looked like at that point or what she had been doing, but it still wasn't too late for her to take a, take a step and to act in obedience to God and take a step in faith on the, the behalf of, of God's kingdom. So I encourage Christians and non-Christians today, different encouragement for both. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you... I mean, look to Christ, look at what he's done, I'd encourage you to take the step of asking him to be Lord and Savior, of asking him, well, really confessing my sins, confessing your sins, confessing of the fact that, that you have, have done whatever it is, you haven't been able to follow his law, and we need, you need his forgiveness. So ask for his forgiveness, ask for him to be your Lord and Savior. Save you from spiritual death, and it'll bring immense joy that is greater than, than all, all others in Jesus. And for those who are followers of Christ, maybe there's something that God has put in your life that you've stalled on. Maybe there's something like sharing the gospel with a neighbor. Maybe it's serving in the church, serving in the community, uh, sins that need confessed that you've held on to, forgiveness that needs to be asked that haven't done, whatever it might be, those things that God puts on your heart, those things that you know that you should do and are the right things to do and that you feel called to do, it's not too late. I mean, there could be relationships that are years old. It's not too late. So 
think of those things. Meditate on that and that idea of what is it that God has called you to or what is it that you've neglected and, and just kind of pushed to the back burner or just saved for later. I'm going to get to it later when things calm down. I'm going to get to it when things are X, Y, Z. So I encourage you to take the step and move forward with those. And remember... Doing godly action, like doing the work of God, is not something that's just going to happen. We can't sit passively and just wait for God to do it for us. And he does. And there's times where he just does something with no help whatsoever, which is pretty awesome. But in terms of us taking steps forward, we also have to be putting ourselves in the position to allow him to use us. And the thing I want to point out from Esther is, is really what did she do before she went into the throne room? And this is a spillover from the end of chapter 4 into the beginning of this one, because it said, after the third day of fasting. So she fasted. She prayed and she fasted before going into the, th- the throne room. So it's that idea of the lives of the people are on the line. Mordecai's like, you've got to do something. You've got to save our people. And so I mean, it's pretty urgent. Like, I don't know if she knew exactly when it was going to happen and what was going to happen. And we're, like, we're going to learn that Mordecai's life's on the line and, and is not a lot of time. It's going to be pretty thin. And what does she do? But she doesn't act right away. She waits. She goes into prayer. She goes into fasting and spends three days doing that, which is a great example for us. And it reminds me of a quote that I love. It's from missionary Hudson Taylor. And he said, Do not have your concert first and tune your instrument afterward. Begin the day with God. And I, I'm not a musician. I can't play a single instrument. Like my, my kids, even my four-year-old, can play the piano better than I can, like legitimately. But I, even I know you, you can't, I mean, you don't want to tune your instrument after the concert is over. Like if you're a part of a band or you're playing in a concert, tuning afterwards is not a very wise thing to do. Like you need to t- tune beforehand. If you're sports-minded, if you do warm-ups, you warm up before the game, like Waiting till afterwards is not necessarily the greatest idea because you're more likely to get hurt. So you warm up, you tune yourself, you do that stuff beforehand so that you can do what you're, what you're trying to do. So that's what Hudson Taylor says, begin the day with God. If you're not allowing God to tune your heart each day, and really each morning because you want to start your day getting in tune, it's difficult to play the concert well. It's difficult to do your day well following Christ if you're not actually tuning your heart to follow him. The more you meditate on God, the more you meditate on his word, the more you will see him in each circumstance. And as you start to see him more, you start to follow him more or do his commands more. Just like with Esther, she knew rushing in was going to be disastrous and for her potentially deadly to just run in. So she stops, even in urgency, she stops and prays and fasts. So it's good to get your heart, to get your mind in tune and ready. Christ is a great example of this, and there's a number number of cases where it talks about Jesus going and praying, so his dependence on it. One I want to highlight in particular was when he was going to the cross. So when Jesus was heading to the cross, as we know, a significant moment in human history, and what does he do before going to the cross is he stops and he prays. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he stops and he takes time to pray. And so he, he humbles himself, he talks with God, and he even said, like, if there's any other way, let it be, but if not, if, like, if this is it, let's do it. And he takes that time to just make sure that he is in perfect alignment, that he has God with him, he is doing God's will, and God is with him as he walks to that cross. 
And we know, I mean, if Jesus is doing that, holy smokes, yeah, we, we need to also. And it's tough sometimes because we, we live in a culture that prizes busyness. I mean, there's, there's, there seems to be a lot to do. I wake up in the morning, especially, like, uh, there's, there's some school days where it's just go, 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 and then the alarm doesn't go off the right time. Even when it does, it's just go, 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 go. There's so many things to get done. And if I'm not intentional, there's many times where I'm at the end of the day just kind of trying to catch my breath and like, oh, I definitely didn't start my morning with prayer and the word. And then I never got into it at all the whole day long. And then I'm just, my mind, I, legitimately, my mind just isn't right. And so it's important to do that and to just get our minds, get our hearts tuned. Also, with the prayer, I think it shows a lot of our trust and our dependence on God. So when we just rush into the day, in a sense, it's saying that we've got this. Like we're saying, like, I don't need to pray or start my day with God because I'm going to go through and I got this and I can do it. Stopping, getting into prayer, is that, that moment of, God, I need you. God, I need your word. I need your help. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Give me your word and be with me today. So it's this trust, it's this dependence that we have on God. And, and really, because we can make excuses as to why we don't act sometimes, why we don't move, like why I didn't share the gospel with, with that neighbor, why I didn't do this or do that. And, and in the end, we can make those excuses, we can come up with ways, like I, I'm not equipped for it, or I don't, you know, even Moses, like I'm not eloquent in speech. And there's a lot of different excuses we can make because, and, and some of them, I, I, I completely get it. If we don't feel like we know enough or we don't feel like we have the right words, like what if that neighbor, what if that person asks a question I can't answer? What if I look foolish? What if, and there's all these what ifs and there's this feeling of once I'm confident, once I feel like I'm ready for it, then I'm gonna step up, then I'm gonna do it and then I'll, you know, then I can be effective, which really even that mindset, even though there seems to be some good in there of like, yeah, I wanna get better at this, but that shouldn't stop you from acting now. Because in the end, what God even says is that he uses our weakness to show his strength. He doesn't say, go get strong and then I'll use you. He's going to use your weakness. So like, I mean, for me, I shared this story this morning. It was just completely off script. But, but me being here and me being a teacher, like, that was not something I ever wanted to do. Like, when, I, when I was younger, my, my worst scores on anything ever were always public speaking and anything that had to do with writing, so like trying to like write an outline for this, I'm like, oh, this is so painful. And, and same thing, that's what I thought, and the whole class thought, anytime I would speak in public, like doing speeches. I, I remember like standing there with like my little note cards, and oh, it was, it was torturous. So then when God called me first to, to go into teaching, I'm like, what? Like, no, no, that is not, that is, that's not who I am. Like, that's not my strength. That's not something I'm good at. But I had a lot of encouragement with people who pushed me that way, and in the end, I mean, that's, you know, I, that's what God wanted me to be doing. And like, this is where he wants me to be. So like, it's cool though, because anytime I get up in front of other people, like I still get the nerves, I still get all of that, but I know that I am 100% dependent on God. Like, I don't feel like this is a strength. This is not my wheelhouse. And I know that the only way I'm going to do anything decent is if the Holy Spirit is working in me, because God's strength is going to show through my weakness. And so in that, I can rejoice, which is why I keep telling myself beforehand, or like when I'm prepping, and I'm like, I can rejoice in this. I can, I, okay. But it's in your weakness, God will show his strength. So even if you don't feel equipped, even if you don't feel like you have whatever gifting to go and serve in this area or to share the gospel with, with this person, even if you don't feel that, 
it doesn't matter. You know enough. You know the faithfulness of God. You know the strength of God, and you know that he will use you. So I encourage you, step forward with God and do what he's called you to do. There's a lot of joy in it. There's a lot of joy that comes in following the Lord. There's a joy just in obedience by itself. So I just encourage you to take those steps and, and find that joy. It'll bless you and be a blessing to others. All right, so second half of this, uh, of this chapter, I want to hit this part now. Uh, so 9 through 14, so now it, it changes gears a little bit, where, as I said, the first part dealt with Esther and what was going on in the, in the throne room. So now we're going to look at Haman and what's going on with him in relation to Mordecai. So I'm going to read uh, 5, 9 through 14, and then break that one down a little bit. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends with and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman leaves this banquet feeling, well, feeling seems pretty high and mighty. He was joyful. But then all of his joy is lost when he sees Mordecai. So Mordecai, so this is, so the Jew, Esther's, Esther's cousin, uh, and, and he's the one who kind of has spurred Haman into getting this decree made to kill all the Jews. So meaning, I mean, he's already worked a plan to have Mordecai killed. But he sees him, and he's just so filled with rage that that's not even enough. Like, the fact that he's going to get him killed is not enough because he wants it done now. Because as long as he sees Mordecai, he says he cannot be happy. Not even his sons bring him joy. So I, one of the commentators was like, I wonder if his sons were present when he said that. Like, that's a, that's a slap in the face. But he is that fixed on this act of what he feels being disrespected. And, and really, when we look at it, and anger itself, and that's largely what it comes from, is this idea of, of not getting what we feel we want or not getting what, what we deserve. So some form of you know, entitlement, like, like Haman felt entitled to being respected. He felt entitled to this honor because of his position. And when he didn't get what he felt he deserved or what he should have, then he just got angry. Someone had to pay for this, you know, this perceived wrongdoing. Uh, and, and it's an extreme example, but also at the same time as we look at Mordecai and we see, I mean, gosh, that looks really foolish. But at the same time, if we look at ourselves, even though we might not be as extreme as, as Haman, what we know is that in, in Matthew 5, 21, 22, Jesus links anger and murder together at the heart level. They stem from the same selfish desires. And so Jesus kind of broadened the, the definition of murder in a sense and just saying, well, you never murdered anybody, but, you know, have you been angry? Like, do you have anger in your heart? 
And, and really, that's what we want to think of when we look at Mordecai. It's like, yeah, he built physical gallows that he was going to try to kill someone. We may not be building physical gallows, but there's a good chance that we have some that we've built up in our hearts. And so we might not be acting on it, but it's still going to be, be a detriment because it's going to harden our own hearts, and it's also going to harm our relationships with others. So it's important to be, to be mindful, you know, what, what are the things that, in a sense, make you angry? And really, nothing makes you angry. We, you know, we get angry ourselves, and things just bring that out. But what are the things that kind of fire you up? And what does it look like? Like, when something doesn't go your way, what does it look like? Like, is there, is there aggressive anger? Is it more passive aggressiveness? Does it come out with, with criticism? Or maybe it's avoidance, and you just try to get away from the problem or the person? There's different ways. There's a lot of different faces to anger, but they're all dangerous. And so we need to be able to identify them in our lives. They're dangerous, as I said, because they harden our heart, which can take us away from God and hurt our relationship with him. And they're going to harm our relationships with, with those who we are angry with. And sometimes not even the ones we're angry with. Like if I'm angry with, with you know, let's say one of my kids, a lot of times that affects my wife as well because of my actions. So it, it'll harm our relationships with the person we're angry with and with those in, in the, the periphery as well. It's tough, though, because we know with anger, when you look at it afterwards and you can see a lot of the foolishness, like with Mordecai, but in that moment, like in the moment when you're angry, and a lot of times it, it seems right. Like it, it seems like it, it, you know, it almost even feels good sometimes of you get angry and you, you voice yourself or you show this strength or you gave a person what they deserved because they did something wrong and well, they just got what was coming to them anyway. And so we, we have these different excuses in a sense. We have these different thoughts that, that can make the anger seem either justified or just make us, for a moment, feel better because we kind of got that off our chest or, or lightened that burden, which is just going to come back in the end. So in, in the end, we, we see that, we might feel that, which makes it tough, even though when we look back, like, well, what good did it do? Like, if I act out and I do something and I look, like, what, what did I accomplish? Like, what did I want to accomplish? What did get accomplished? Like, did, did Christ get exalted? Did I honor him well? Did I, did I benefit this relationship? Did I point someone else towards Christ? Did, it, you know, did they see God in my actions at all? And we can look back and we can start seeing some of that stuff largely when we act out in anger wasn't, wasn't there. And, and really, a lot of times when we act out in anger, we, we do end up acting in a way that's almost illogical. And I, and I like to highlight this because it helps to show the dependence on the Holy Spirit but the idea that when we get angry, like when something angers us, there's actually something that happens in our brain where it will, it will switch to a part of the brain that's more defense, the fight or flight response. So it switches to that part of the brain and you start going more reactionary and it will actually use less of the part of the brain that, that does reasoning and logic. So legitimately, when you get fired up by something, Reason and logics kind of start going away, and you just start going defense, and you just start acting, which is why sometimes you do something, and you're like, gosh, what was I doing? I wasn't even thinking. Or like, I might try to use all the self-control in the world, and I'm like, oh, I'm doing great. This is going well. And then somebody does something at bedtime, and I'm like, oh, no, no. Like, I, like, I snap, and I'm like, whoa, whoa. And it's this crazy moment of like, I've been doing so well, and I've been feeling so good, and I was really joyful, and now it just like was gone. Like, I feel like, I feel like Haman. I'm like, holy smokes, like, just because someone did this, all of a sudden my joy seemed to disappear, and it, and it seems illogical. 
But there is that part of the brain that can, can cause that to happen. And the more we go down that path, the harder it is to break the habits. So in the end, well, what do you do? Like if, if self-control is not going to work, what do you do? Well, you, you need the Holy Spirit. And in the end, that's, I mean, that, that's what is going to save us. And, and really, we're not defined by our anger. It's like when we get angry, you, you might beat yourself up or you know, feel, feel poor afterwards, and I do that a lot. But it doesn't do any good just to heap burdens and then try harder because it didn't work in the first place. So trying harder is not going to work again. So we've got to realize our, we're not defined by the anger. We're not defined by our sins. But we give those up to Christ and we go to the Holy Spirit and we, we allow ourselves to be renewed. As we said, going into prayer, meditating on Scripture, we allow our hearts to get in tune. We allow it to be renewed. And with the Holy Spirit, we can start to see some of those things in our lives change shape. We can start to see, you know, not miraculously all at once, usually it's not that way, but we start to see steps forward where we start turning away, repenting from those old habits and those old ways. And we start getting better, and we start getting better, and we start getting better, not because we're trying harder, which is the freeing part, but because, well, because the Holy Spirit's at work in us, and we're focusing on Christ. We're focusing on the cross. And when we focus on Christ and the cross, we focus a lot less on ourselves. Because when we see how good he is and we see what we have received that we didn't deserve, because with sin we deserve death, but instead we get the grace of Christ. When I see that, I'm a lot less likely to get mad because I'm not as entitled to all these other things. I've already been given so much more than I deserve. And it makes me think of, it's an old saying that I really don't like, the saying that, uh, was it, um, that some, they're just saying that some people never change. I know there's more. Some people never change. And you might hear that sometimes of like somebody repeats a mistake, like, uh, like yeah, they, everyone has said that he was a better guy and turning things around, but he goes and does the same thing. Some, you know, people just never change. And that's just, I, I don't like it because it's not true. It is not true that people can't change. Like, yet, yes, left to yourself, if you just try to do it on your own, it's difficult and you might not be able to change. But with the love of Christ, Someone who experiences the love of Christ, there is always a change. There is heart transformation. And it might be, as I said, step by step. might not happen all at once. But when you experience the love of Christ, things change. People change. We don't like who we are. We don't like our sins. I don't like the way I've, I've hurt people. I don't like those things. How do I change? Not by trying harder. I do appreciate effort, but that's only going to go so far. I need the Holy Spirit. I need the cross of Christ. And with that, I start moving forward. With that, I start getting better and start being less angry, being less, and name it, because it's not just anger, it's any sin. We start moving away from those with the power of the Holy Spirit as we focus on the cross itself. One other piece I wanted to highlight from Haman before I close it out is just looking at what, what happens in the end. Like, what does Haman do after he gets angry? He, he keeps it together for a little bit. I like that. He had a little self-control. He kept himself together, and he goes home, and he gathers people to tell them how good he is and to get their advice. And, and you look at it, and I'm like, this is the craziest advice I've ever heard. He goes and just... He makes me so mad, and I can't be happy as long as he's alive and I see him. So what's the advice? Oh, then just go and kill him. Like, kill him now. Why even wait? Just get him killed, and then you can be happy and be joyful. And it says that yeah, it pleased Haman. Like, oh, yeah. That's what I was hoping he would say. Like, how absurd is all of that? It'd be like if I went home and I was really mad about something. You know, you throw that phrase out sometimes. Like, oh, I'm so mad I could kill him. 
and then your friends and everybody are like, yeah, do that, do it. Like, for real? Like, are you kidding me? And so it, it just highlights that idea of, man, the voices that you put around yourself are going to have an influence. Like, if you've got people who are only going to tell you the, the things that you want to hear, well, then that's what you're going to do. You're going to do the things that you want. You're going to do the things that are still going to be, as we see here, harmful to others. He's devaluing others. He's you know, going to the length of, of killing others. And the people are just saying, that's yeah, a great idea. As long as it makes you happy, just go and do that. And so do what you need to do. Like that's, it's, it's not going to work. It's going to lead to frustration. It's going to lead to discontent in the end. Because what happens, what happens to Haman? Like, even if he succeeded in his plan, what happens? Somebody else is going to disrespect him at some point again, and now he's going to get angry all over again, and the whole cycle repeats itself. It, it just doesn't work. And so it's so helpful to have people in your life who will speak godly truth, who are, who are willing to be really often can be inconvenient, it can be uncomfortable, but to have people who will speak the Lord's word, especially when, when you're going astray and, and need that correction. And for us to do the same to others, to be willing to, to take that step, which takes some courage, but willing to do that so that we can help keep people on the path. That's why as members, we pledge that to each other. We're going to help each other stay on that path to Christ and encourage one another in it. So in the end, as we see Haman... A self-centered life that leads to, to destruction, leading to the you know, destruction of his own soul, but also harming those around him. Whereas on the other hand, Esther, as we had looked at in that first chapter, Esther had turned from the worldliness that she had been indulging in and put the kingdom of God before herself. She took time to let God work in her first and then through her as she moved with courage and godly confidence. And that godly confidence, that's that confidence that can't be shaken because it's in an unshakable God who is doing that work who we are trusting in. It's the same courage that you could have because you have the same unshakable God. So keep your focus on the cross, get into God's word, and pray for his grace. Pray for him to renew your mind. Pray for him to tune your heart each day, each morning to follow him. And as he works in you more, then the more and more he will also work through you, which will be a blessing not only to you, but be a blessing to all those around you. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you are a good and sovereign God. We know that you are with us, and we know how much we need you. We pray as we see here uh, that, that we would see our dependence on you, and no matter how well things go, uh, a lot of success, a lot of those things are, are fleeting and, and a lot of times not even what they appear to be. So I pray that you would help to show us how much we need you. And, and even when we get prideful, that you would take drastic measures if necessary. Do whatever it takes, humble us, and help us to trust you more. And in that, that we would have more and more joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.